Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Joe Sestak, a three-star vice admiral, the highest ranking military official ever elected to Congress. He represented Pennsylvania's 7th Congressional District in the House of Representatives and he is now running for president in the Democratic primary. Joe Sestak, thank you for joining me. Edward, thank you. It's good to be aboard. As I mentioned in the introduction, you have a very long CV. I named some of the things that you've done through your career. You served in the U.S. Navy for over 31 years. You've served as the director for defense policy on the National Security Council under President Clinton. And you served in the House of Representatives for two terms. In fact, you've been called the most accomplished presidential candidate you've never heard of. Why have you decided to run for president now? About a year ago, my daughter's brain cancer came back. It was the brain, same brain cancer, glioblastoma, that John McCain had. It's quite a deadly beast. It's actually what took me out of the Navy to be with her when I came back from the war. And when she was four years old, and because she was saved, I ran on one issue. I decided to pay back my country, and that was on health care for everybody. Unexpectedly, it came back a year ago. I had no intentions of getting in this race. But as I sat there and turned down this job I was about to take, literally held her hand as she slept from the just retirement, that tiredness she had from radiation. I began to think. And that moved me, my thinking about where the nation was headed in a very divided way to run. And as we go on, I'll, tell, I'll explain more, but the real reason I'm running is because I believe that we need someone to beat Mr. Trump, but we need someone who can unite America, can convene the world again, and then because that person is trusted, because everyone will know that he is accountable to people, all Americans, not to party, not to self, not to special interests. They will, even when disagreeing well, be able to support policies that need to be moved again. We won't meet any of the defining challenges of our time, Edward, in America unless we become united again. You mentioned there the extremely personal first-hand experience you had with the importance of accessible health care. Your daughter survived brain cancer twice. You previously said that the treatment your daughter received under the military's TRICARE healthcare program motivated you to run for office in 2006. Obviously, you're now saying it motivates you to run this time round. How has that personal experience with the healthcare system in America shaped your views on healthcare policy and how important it is for all Americans to have affordable and accessible treatment? It did it tremendously, and it did it, first of all, by help forcing me to look in the window, America, really, to see what we had in the military, health care for everybody, no questions asked, whatever you needed, it was taken care of, family or warrior forward. And so the second time, and you're right, we were hit with another devastating predicament, but at the end of it, they couldn't give her the same chemotherapy that they did before. It was literally so strong. It had ravaged her body. She might not be able to withstand it again. And children had tried it and didn't survive it, but they were willing to try. Their parents were initially uh, back years ago because there was no other choice to survive glioblastoma, and only 8% of kids survived. But this time to try a new drug, one that hadn't been used, according to the hospital, on brain cancer before in its place, we got denied by a health insurance company. It was $300,000 it would have cost my family. We won it on appeal after we'd set aside the first 50000 And you sat there and saying, why? Has it, has it really changed my life? Yes. I got into Congress and I ran in a nearly two-to-one Republican district on one refrain initially. I'm a retired Navy admiral running on national security, but begins at home in health security. And now today, after the second incident, 
of my daughter when she was in a safe harbor again, a warrior beyond any, beating this demon twice. I decided that we had to get that public option back that moves us towards one of two ways, Medicare for all, where the government pays directly to private hospitals, directly to private doctors, and takes away that middleman that's unnecessary, that health insurance company that denied me initially, even though I was in a military health care plan, it was run by Yamana, that we couldn't have the drug that was needed to save my daughter's life. And second, there is a way to go towards the VA system. The VHA, the hospital system, is truly, if you read books like Wounds of War, a RAND Corporation study, a journal of medicine, even despite its problems, and it has some, is rated equal or better than any private or public health care system in America on 11 major indices. In fact, it's a system not unlike the UK, where you could have the, uh, the hospitals and doctors are owned by the government. And perhaps that's the model that we go towards for the rural communities, like where I am here in Iowa, and where private healthcare companies are closing down the hospitals, that that's what's needed there as a public option, as we try it as a transition of choice to make sure it works, as we learned in the military, piss poor planning is piss poor execution. And as we move towards it, the Medicare for all might be the one for all the nation because then you have the innovativeness that comes from wonderful medical institutions that are private, like John Hopkins or University of Pennsylvania. The healthcare system in America isn't the only healthcare issue that Americans face. The American Medical Association has warned that the high cost of prescription drugs is rapidly becoming a serious barrier to care for many Americans with net U.S. prescription drug spending projected to reach as high as $405 billion by 2021. What can be done to tackle the rising cost of prescription drugs in America? There are three major issues that we have to address in this area. The first is to do away with a law in 2003 that forbade that Medicare could negotiate for best prices. The Veterans Administration, Medicaid, can negotiate for best price. You could go, like a vet, as I am, into into VA and buy many drugs for one-third the cost because you can negotiate. You don't have to take an unnegotiated price from the healthcare company. Second, we have to stop what's well-known as pay for delay to where pharmaceutical drug companies would brand pharmaceuticals pay a generic company that wants to make it in a generic uh, brand after his patent rules that way is ended, and they pay them not to do it. Or they change one little molecule in it and say they've got a uh, a, a brand new one. Third is we have to be permitted to be able to purchase uh, pharmaceuticals sold in other countries such as Britain or Canada, that FDA have federal drug administration level of security of the chain of supply and demand, that you know you're getting a drug that's sold there, often by American firms, at much less cost overseas, and then we can purchase them back here alone. Look, this is the biggest cost probably that is rising among, among it, and this is just three easy ways to do it. And I was glad to see there was a study that was going to be done by the administration. Then they abandoned it. We were going to take approximately eight or 12 of pharmaceuticals sold around in Europe and see what their prices were compared to ours. And over a number of years say, well, you know, and they were going to mandate that those drugs had to be at the same price here to see what the impact was. First, I don't see why we just don't do that. Second is they then abandoned that effort. Pharmaceuticals, I can tell you that lobbying power is is not very good. Actually, it's quite terrible for Americans. One of the criticisms that your campaign has faced, you've not gone as far as some of your opponents in certain issues. So let's address three of the areas where that's been argued against your campaign. You've called for funding to make access to preschool education available to all families, which is known as universal pre-K, and proposed ways to make college more affordable with profit-free loans. 
But you've not gone as far as Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders in calling for universal loan forgiveness. Why do you not support that approach to education policy? Well, I am a person that believes in, the, in what Napoleon once said. And I don't tell my wife this, Edward, when he said, if I were to be in love, I would analyze it bit by bit because you can't ask how or why enough. So when you look at, let's take those students that have gotten a loan since it's 2005, only 2% of them have a college loan that's greater than $50,000. 44% have no loan. Uh, uh, another 25% have $10,000 in, in loans. So when you look at it, you're talking about a, a number that isn't all those students. And so you sit back and you say, were they treated unfairly? Yes, they were. Our government, as well as private loan chart, uh, <laughs> uh, loaners forced on their parents and themselves, so to speak, debt that they couldn't uh, handle. And in fact, when you look at it, part of the reason is four out of all 10 college students, graduates since 2009 are in jobs that don't require a college degree. So they're not getting the income to do it. So here's what you really need to do is what you need to do is make it automatic and universal. That a program that is actually today in existence called the repay program that you now know that you don't pay back any more than 10% of your income. In fact, my proposal is you won't pay back any more than 5% of your income. And after 20 years, it's forgiven. So if you don't have any income, you don't pay anything. And we would grandfather that for everyone. The reason that's the smart way of doing it, you don't drive anybody into bankruptcy. In fact, for those who are in, on private loans, you could say, which we don't, you can go bankrupt if you did desire to. They took that away. But on the whole, what you've done here is said, you're not going to pay any more than 5% of your income. And that's after you take away 150% of the income, which is 150% of a above the poverty level. You take that much out and it's only 5% of the remaining. That way you don't force those that I do want to talk about what my Democratic Party is not focused on and they should be above anything else. You don't make the labor force of those who, those that work, the laborers, those who work with their hands and their minds who don't go to college, that have wonderful skills, pay off this debt that is eventually going to have to be paid off by taxes. But you do take care of students in a very sensible way, so they only have to pay back so much, and only if their income permits it, and then it's forgiven after 20 years no matter what. So then you step back here, and you really look at what I call training for a lifetime. You know, in the military, when you have a person that is all of a sudden loses their job because, let's say, in the Air Force, the F-15 goes out because it's no longer technologically proficient. Technology changes so much today. So what do we do in the military? We say, hey, you're going to go to the United States Air Force Community College, which is actually the largest community college in America. And you're going to get a certificate to be able to do maintenance on the new plane, the F-22. So what do we do in America for the person who loses their coal mining job as we go into climate change and green energy. We do nothing. What do we do for the person? And I met a precision agronomist the other day. And as I chatted with her, she said, what I'm doing with GPS is making sure that in the future, tractors don't need drivers. It'll be wirelessly driven. What do you do with the farmers who had people who were hired to drive the tractors? We do nothing. America spends less than any developed nation on the labor training area. We spend 0.001% of gross domestic product. Those were the Trump supporters. Those were the Clinton supporters. They're the ones who took it really hard in the recession. And so we can take care of college students in a very sensible way of putting them into this don't pay back unless you can afford it area, but not have the moral hazard of having the labor force who is kicked out of their coal mine job and with the remaining income they might get working in a fast food restaurant, because we don't train them again, they might have to pay, they'll have to pay it off. What we want to do 
is I've set aside $200 billion for this, is have government facilitate where they're retrained. And they're retrained again because technology, as you well know, Edward, is, is just transformational. It's going to change every day. And we have to get training for a lifetime like we do in the military. You're trained, and then you're trained out of the coal mine for a green energy manufacturing job. And here's the key. One-third of all small businesses in America say they can't get the trained workforce. Where are they? 11 million who used to be in the workforce are no longer represented. They've left because 40% of Americans don't even have $400 for an emergency, according to the Federal Reserve Bank. Never mind to be retrained. And that's why we invested in them to learn how to do that coal mine. Let's invest in them with the public and private venture together to train them for that green energy job. And that's the way to really drive who really, like the enlisted in our Navy, who really make the Navy work. That's who really make our laborers America work. You want to end fossil fuel subsidies, but some of your fellow Democratic candidates have proposed further measures, including forcing fuel companies to pay for efforts to stop climate change. Why do you not support forcing fuel companies to essentially pay to offset their impact on the environment? Well, I do. I take away all those tax benefits it's gotten, uh, tax credits and et cetera, and move them over to green energy. That's billions of dollars that I move over there. And what I also do is place a carbon fee upon them that will start at about $40 per ton and go up $10 each year. Now, the reason I do it that way is that's a very similar mechanism using the market that we did for acid rain when we had it here in America. It was differently done, but it by and large used the market to where now in my proposal is they do take it away. You place that burden on them, and as people's prices go up, they're not going to go and buy uh, the, the, the car that's driven by gasoline. They'll go to the uh, hybrid car or they'll go to the battery car. And, by the way, what they're going to do is get back that dividend uh, is given right back to them. But that initial uh, effort to see that price there moves them away from it. But here's the real issue. I mean, we have to recognize in America, and this is what people aren't talking about, that we could pass the Green New Deal in a decade, and it won't matter if that's all that America does, because that's only 15% of the reduction in global emissions that's needed in this world before that catastrophic bomb begins to explode on us. Saudi Arabia in 10 years will use as much energy to power its air conditioning as it exports in oil today. 8% of the tropics has air conditioning today. By 2050, half of it will. And if we don't get the Kigali Agreement Amendment, if we don't take that, and we haven't ratified it in America, and it permits hydrofluorocarbons to remain in countries for at least over a decade from now. What are we doing? Those are a thousand times worse as molecules for climate change as a CO2 is. And then if we permit all the world to have air conditioning that is uh, whatever the average type of air conditioning, say, instead of the most efficient, well, that's equivalent to deforesting two-thirds of the Amazon. With all of the world together or nothing. That's why I stressed at the beginning, we need someone who can beat Mr. Trump, unite this nation to get these issues through that we talked about because he's trusted and convene the world like the United States once did instead of kicking bruised allies and leaving them behind and telling them it's a wrap like we're doing today with this administration, convene the world to heighten and, and the national commitment, and then enforce them of all nations. You've supported a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, but haven't backed the sort of substantial changes to immigration enforcement that former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro supports. Do you believe I should be restructured or dismantled? And if not, why? Well, I certainly don't think it needs dismantled. 
I think there are areas in it that need training and retraining, but it's like a captain taking over a ship. You just don't do away with the crew on something that needs to be done for whether it's making sure human trafficking or whether to make sure, and I'm the head of the Navy's anti-terrorism unit, it may not be true today, but back when I did the strategic anti-terrorism unit, we knew that al-Qaeda was involved in the drug trade. So we want to make sure we can protect our borders. And if ICE needs to be straightened out, let's straighten that out. But look, I've been since 2007 uh, for John McCain's bipartisan bill, for George Bush's bipartisan bill, uh, for Ted Kennedy's bipartisan bill, uh, to where I've been forthright, went on Breitbart, you know, to say, look, if it hadn't been for the documented and undocumented since 1970, we would be in a population death spiral, not unlike Japan that has stagnated its economy for the last three decades because it doesn't have an immigration policy as they grow older and older. If it wasn't because American women's birth rate has been since 1970 insufficient to replace those who passed away, unfortunately, each year. And now it's going to be enhanced by the baby boomer generation retiring in moss. We need immigration, and we can do it well. We can protect our borders more wisely than building a wall. Oh, my gosh, an unmanned air vehicle like the Global Hawk that can fly along the desert and look down and see someone trek it apart and send a Jeep over there to give them water and then to treat them humanely if they want asylum and, uh, and all. I mean, here's a prime example. We have in, the military, have in our government an institution like run by FEMA called the Mass Care Strategy Program, to where when we have refugees in America from a hurricane, they, with the Red Cross and other nonprofits, deploy and treat the families humanely and nicely and, and, and with help and, and what's needed until they can be reunited with other families. Why aren't we deploying that today down there on the border? So when people say, break apart government and throw it away, wait a minute. Understand there's good parts to our government, and if something's not working well, you make sure that they do it correctly, or you fire the individuals that are abusing or tweeting something like a few did uh, of things that shouldn't be done. This is just a matter of accountability, like a good captain of a ship. While in office, you wrote various pieces of bipartisan legislation that successfully passed Congress, and in the 111th Congress, Congress actually passed more bills written by you than bills written by both of Pennsylvania's senators combined. In an increasingly partisan political system, if you were elected president, how would you seek to reach across the aisle like you did when you were representing Pennsylvania and convince Republicans to work with you to get your agenda into law? There will be two ways I'll do this. Um, there'll be one is that I will be meeting on a continual basis with those elected representatives of both parties equally. And I mean to where I not only have them over to the White House for a beer <laughs> or dinner in the private residence, but where I go over to them and call upon them. I did that in my district. The morning after I won, I called up the chief, uh, head of the Republican Party and said, Charlie, mind if I come over and for a cup of coffee to your home? <laughs> I think he didn't think it was me initially. And we're still friends today. I just texted with him about two days ago, but he, uh, he didn't vote for me, although he claims he might have. But uh, and that's one way. The second way is my district had 87 percent of its elected officials were, were uh, Republicans. But I also knew that didn't mean they were going to agree with me all the time, but I went to the people. Man, when we had those healthcare town halls, I got there, 10 of them I had. I got there half an hour early, shook the hand of everyone who came in, stayed there three and a half hours until the last one left, the first one. The next step was two hours and all. And then on the last one, the Delaware County Tea Party Patriots asked for a photograph with me. If you disagreed with me on choice, you came in, I had a care, 8 o'clock Saturday morning. 60 people showed up. We wrote them, emailed them, however they mentioned us. And I sat there and listened, talked, chatted. But you can't find a word from me putting down the Republican Party. You can't find me arguing 
on, on policies. And then finally, it's the tone. Look, the captain of a ship sets the tone of respect, civility, both for the wonderful citizens of all parties in America, but also with a valued ally overseas. And that is also a way. Is it going to be easy? Heck, it's not going to be easy. But, you know, going down to I will hold a town hall in the middle of America that first day. There's going to be six things I'm going to do, and that will be one of them. Just to show that's how it's going to be. Every week or two, I'll have a town hall so the citizens can have a go, and I can also let them know where I'm going. Sometimes they just want the captain of a ship to come down to the mess deck so they can talk to them. And is it going to be tough? You bet it is. Is it going to be enjoyable? Yes, in the way that John F. Kennedy said it was. Applying all your faculties towards excellence. And if America doesn't do this, we can't, once again, ensure the American dream has expanding and becoming a beacon for people who want to come here to enjoy it. Let's touch on your military experience, which is quite vast. As I mentioned, you served 31 years in the U.S. Navy. You did national security roles after that in both the Clinton and Bush administrations. You served in the military at war alongside NATO allies. How has that work and the work you did subsequently on the National Security Council shaped your approach to tackling the challenges the U.S. faces abroad? When I walked out of the White House, and almost every night I left my office in the West Wing, excuse me, in the executive building, walked into the West Wing and looked into the Oval Office because they kept the doors open. And I thought how honored I am to have had this opportunity. But when I walked out the front door, I looked at the sculpture that was closest to the Oval Office. And it wasn't of an American. It was of a foreigner. The man who stood beside George Washington, the general who convinced the reluctant George Washington to leave New York City and to go down to Yorktown, to where that general then commanded both American and French troops to help win that war of independence for us at that final battle. And in recognition, not of what he did, but in recognition that the president and the commander-in-chief must always look out that window and see that the person who is closest to the Oval Office represented an allied nation. That general is there to remind the president we won and we can only maintain the American dream if we are with our allies. When I arrived in the Arabian Sea with my aircraft carrier about a group of 20 to 10 ships waiting there for me, Redward, was an international model of 20 warships. The Japanese were there that had not been outside the Sea of Japan since World War II. Alongside them was Germany. Countries had sent ships from all over the globe, from uh, Canada, coming across the Atlantic, to Australia, crossing the um, uh, Pacific. And the Italian Minister of Defense said it well for why they all had come. America has been attacked, and we will be there for them. And this was for the war in Afghanistan. I will never forget that. And there in that sea, I tell everybody, was America's sign that our greatest power is to convene the world, to bring together those who have similar values, because that is the only way that we can ensure peace and prosperity together. So I will on my very first day, fly over to Paris and convene the world again for the Paris Accord for climate change with a quick slip up to Brussels to say to NATO, you know, America values you because we can't do it by ourselves. I know. I saw it every day in the United States military. But I will tell you one last thing. When I had to take my carrier battle group out of the Straits of Hormuz, excuse me, out of the Arabian Sea into the Straits of Hormuz to later begin the precursor strikes against Iraq, only two countries went with us. And that, to me, was something else I learned. 
that we had Democrats and Republicans alike who voted for that tragic misadventure in Iraq, who didn't understand that military stop problems, they don't fix problems, and that they didn't understand that you better know how it's going to end when you use our military before you decide if it's wise to begin. But those other nations knew and didn't come with us. And so there's also that a commander-in-chief and president, the next one has to understand the limitation of using our military. And so that is why I believe both in lessons learned and in being there when we most need them, not just militarily, but in climate change, in migration issues, in standing up for human rights, that together when we convened the world since World War II, we brought extreme poverty from 65% of the world's population to 9%. That we can, when we're joined together, do the world's collective good, which is our collective good. You talked about reconvening world leaders in Paris to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, bringing the U.S. back into that global conversation. There's been a significant amount of talk about the impact of Donald Trump's presidency on America's standing in the world. Is that how you would seek to begin to reestablish the U.S. on the global stage as the prominent figure in those key issues like climate change, like human rights, as you just mentioned? Yes. The United States must restore our leadership of a liberal world order that was based with our allies and friends on the democratic values of individual and human rights, open and fair market, fair and just government, and embraced, as I said, the world's collective good. Paris climate change, Paris agreement is one. Then slipping over to Brussels to say, look, we stand with you. We do not want a sovereign nation like Ukraine to all of a sudden have its warships commandeered on the Black Sea with impunity, and there's no concern about consequences. And I'd step back and say, you know, when you see a crown prince of Saudi Arabia high five Mr. President Putin, and then feels emboldened to murder an American resident in his embassy because he has no concern of consequences from a rules-based world order. You begin to understand why autocrats are springing up, whether it's in uh, Hungary or Turkey or Brazil or Venezuela or the Philippines. And in India now, we have a nationalist. All have to understand that there is a set of democratic values of which the vast majority of the world, I believe, subscribes to. But if the leader is not there, from human rights to world trade, then we will not be able to have justice or to stop injustice in the world. Take trade with China. What are we doing when we're scattershotting tariffs over there? Convene the world. The European Union doesn't want the uh, might-makes-right approach of China to work its way through the system with its sinocentric institutions, the Belt and Road Initiative, where it has predatory loans and has forced Djibouti and Cambodia to get out of it, to give them naval bases, or Greece to block because of an investment in its country, the unanimity that was needed to have condemned by the EU, the European Union, the illegal seizures of territory, of false territory, built-up territory, fake territory, islands in the South China Sea and claim it is in the waterways or its atrocities in China against the Muslim Uyghur citizens. We need to understand that if we're going to face China on trade, for example, we've got to restructure the World Trade Organization. We, we created that together with our allies, from GATT to the WTO, make the rules fair where they, the rules of evidence to show that China is unfair with state-owned subsidies that are given to state-owned companies, that we are going to say, you know, you're so opaque, we're going to lower the rules of evidence, and we're going to, together with our allies, the EU, Japan, and as we walk back towards the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is 40% of the GDP, and stand together to say, China, look, you want to trade with all of us? It's got to be fair. And you're going to follow the rules of the road now, unlike you've done in the World Trade Organization. Will it be tough? Sure it is. But it's going to take someone who understands the world in depth and breadth and the value of doing it together 
with those who value the same types of ideals as we do. Donald Trump broke precedent when he was elected, becoming the first president in the entire history of the United States to have lacked both political and military service. In fact, he got five deferments during the Vietnam War. Do you consider him a draft dodger? <laughs> Let me just say that uh, I know what he did. I gather when he had bone spurs that some doctors said, but I know that I failed my physical too. And I went back a second time prepared to pass it, and I did. So to me, I think as I've, and I've met many people who want to serve their country or were told they were going to serve their country, and they doubled down when they were initially given a, a deferment for something physical. I was one of them. And I just think that's the right way to approach it. But I would say that the major challenge we have from Mr. Trump is the lack of understanding of how the world works. It's not a trade deal where if you end up on the wrong side of it, a company goes bankrupt and you can write off your tax losses. It's where the farmers of Iowa now no longer can sell their soybean, and Ukraine is taking its place and selling it to China. The people are hurt. And so the judgment of how he goes about both domestic and overseas approaching challenges as trade deals is wrong. And second, I tell people that the tone of a captain of a ship, as I mentioned before, is what sets the course of that ship. And when you use language that's incendiary, he is a commander-in-chief of this nation, that kind of lets the those that might harbor some unwanted, unwarranted impulses to perhaps feel they can act upon them. So when I volunteered to have women come aboard my combat ship as kind of a test, for having them eventually get on to combatant ships. Imagine if as captain, I kind of said, well, we got some women coming on board. Oh, not at all. I said, we are very fortunate to be able to get the best of another demographic on board this ship. And I got to tell you, you're going to meet some darn, mighty darn fine professionals. And tone matters. And I think it's harmed us here at home. And it's harmed us with our allies and friends. And it's permitted those around the world who feel they want to rule in an autocratic way to think they'd be given more licenses, even to desecrate the most sacred sacristy in America, our free and democratic election, as Mr. Putin and Russia did to us with no consequences. You touched on there about serving alongside uh, a variety of different people in the military and how everyone, in your view, who puts themselves forward to serve their country should be respected and should be encouraged to do so. The Trump administration has sought to roll back protections for LGBT individuals, for example, preventing transgender individuals from serving in the military. As someone who served in the military for as long as you did, what did you make of his argument for doing this, that transgender service members cause, quote, tremendous medical costs and disruption? Nonsense. Look, we all knew in the military during Don't Ask, Don't Tell who was of the LBGT community. I mean, come on, 5,000 sailors on an aircraft carrier, their average age 19 and a half. You think we didn't know? And do you think we cared? Hell no. We just wanted to make sure everybody did their job. You know, I can't tell you strong enough how equality really does matter, but nor can I tell you strong enough that we want everybody of every type of demographic in America, if I can use that term, woman, man, race, creed, 
LGBT. It doesn't matter. We want them all because I want the best of the best. And as I said, when I was asked once on Fox by Sean Hannity about women in the military, as President Obama was opening up more combat roles for them, what do you think? I said, Sean, let me tell you what I think. We launched eight pilots off my carrier deck for strikes against Afghanistan, and seven of them were combat professionals that had been in the first Gulf War, that one of those first early launches. And we put up a young nugget, somebody using that term nugget, who hasn't been over in combat before a foreign country. And she disobeyed orders that night, Sean, I said to him, that nobody was to die below 20,000 feet because we knew we had given, as the Americans, the Mujahideen that were now the Taliban when the Mujahideen were fighting the Soviet Union, Stinger missiles. But they only went to 18,000 feet. And well, before you dove lower to help somebody out, you better make sure to give me time, us time, to see if there was any Stinger missiles down there by other electronic means. But eight special forces had been ambushed. Four died immediately. And those remaining soldiers raided up and said they're too close for lasers to be dropping guided munitions. We've got minutes left. Someone straight, cause havoc. We'll get our dead, pick up route knives and get the heck out of here. Some asked permission, but that young woman didn't. She was willing to risk her life, never mind her career, in disobeying orders and dove three times in 20,000 feet. And those four men picked up their dead comrades and came home. They didn't care, I said to Sean, who saved their butt that night. They, and if we hadn't had her finally be given the right, the equality, to be all she might be, as we always are in search of the perfect union in America, well, you know what? The common mission of the Navy, of America, wouldn't have performed as well that night. That's why I want the best of the best of the L, the G, the Bs, the Ts. I want them all. I want the best of the best. And also, of course, for equality. And you know what? I will tell you, every one of those 19 and a half year olds out there, I'm sure felt the same way. During your time in Congress and with your background as a veteran, you were an original co-sponsor of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, as well as the repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act, which both of those were a big step in LGBT equality in America. While LGBT rights have progressed since you were in Congress with the legalization of same-sex marriage, there are still challenges faced by LGBT Americans that other citizens don't experience. What would be your priorities for the LGBT community if elected? To pass the Equality Act. Period. That has got to be done so nobody can ever again say that they can be dis that there's an excuse to discriminate in them because we have made it very clear it is against the law to discriminate against the LBGT community. But then also by proudly meeting with, assigning into senior positions those of that community. I have to tell you, some of my most stalwart supporters in this race, matter of fact, my <laughs> who's trying to convince me for a year to get in, uh, is of the LGBT community. Uh, a, you know, Sean Strube, who wrote the defining book in AIDS back in the 90s and, uh, and is a dear family friend. And, uh, and I'll take a lot of advice from him and the rest of the community to make sure we do this in a way that everybody does understand that that Declaration of Independence means somebody. Everyone is created equal. And, you know, we're going to get there. It's just, you know, it's like one of the other things I'm going to do my first day, and I'll probably finish up mentioning the six or seven of them, is when I come back from Paris, I'm going to be on the way back announcing that plan, training for a lifetime, so that those Trump supporters, those Clinton supporters, the labor force, those who make America go. And you got to remember, I had the plumbers, the welders, the electricians, the machinists make, the cable workers on my first ship back in the 70s. So I worked with those artisans who use their hands in the mind, and I love them. And so we're going to announce that because that's really who needs that, that boost of training and retraining. But when I land, I'll walk over to a mosque 
just walk in as I've been to many mosques overseas. And it's just like dental presence to say, man, we're glad you're here. And then I'll go to a gun show. And I know I've got enough from the NRA. So I'm going to walk in and say, and hopefully I'll ask Ollie North, who ran my backside as a Marine back from Vietnam, became president years later of the NRA. And, as you know, he, they dismissed him because he stood up for justice, of not misusing money. But uh, to walk with me if he'd like, because I kept contact with him, and to say, you know, you're valued Americans. But I just want you to know that I don't think the salt web. I know the salt web can be that. You can see on my website as I boarded ships with my, uh, even as an admiral, I'd go with them to board ships. Art needed on the streets of America. And we're going to work together to make that happen. But your guns are safe that you have by the right of the Second Constitutional Amendment. I want to serve all Americans, but I want to make sure that it's done on the principle of equality. And for the common good, as everybody can equally attain their individual rights and a fair opportunity. You've served as a professor at Cheney University and a distinguished practice professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College and have taught courses on ethical leadership and restoring the American dream. As a professor, how would you grade Donald Trump's ethics during his presidency? Well, I, that course on ethics uh, was based upon two things. One, the ethics that I had learned and grown up with in the Navy, integrity's values, which are service to country, to others above self, and accountability in answering for oneself. The examples I give is those Democrats and Republicans who voted for that tragic war in Iraq that created ISIS, that two decades of unaccounted consequences there, and then the same Democrats and Republicans that voted to dismantle the one the wall in the one place where a wall is needed to keep greed out and accountability in Wall Street, and none of them accounted for themselves to answer for themselves that they were responsible. I think that's what real ethics and accountability is in one regard. And no, I haven't seen that. We were told the swamp was going to be drained. It's gotten worse. And I don't see accountability for oneself where farmers here in Iowa are being damaged by the scattershot tariffs that are being shot against China as China outsmarts the president. So I have found that there, that has been a miss and been missing, and also the tone that's used to where we use uh, rhetoric to divide rather than unite. But I also know this, is that the second part of the ingredients in that course was to let students understand from my perspective that in uniting and bringing people together and raising them to a higher expectation, that's what real ethical leadership does. But to do that, you have to understand that people come together, but they also have different needs. And how you look at it from their perspective of what they need and raise them to a common want is important. So when I do healthcare, I didn't put down one side and the other side and the other side. I try to bring them together. Whereas, you know, when we did health care or the president talks about Affordable Care Act, he says this is so wrong and here's why and, and divides people. But what's really needed is to say, well, you know, you go into a place like Philadelphia where there is uh, high poverty in some of the areas in Philadelphia. Actually, the poor, the poor have certain small sections that have the childhood mortality rate less than in Syria. And when you say to them, look, we're going to have, you might have to pay a little bit, but not that much in order to have health care, their need to have health care is raised to, I really want that, and I'll, I'll be willing to pay a little bit. I just can't afford it all. But when I go into a conservative place to talk about health care, you know, they have a need, particularly during that recession when the Affordable Care Act was coming out, to say, look, I'm barely making it. I'm making it okay, but barely. And their need is not to have to pay for someone else. 
and any freeloaders, one might say. And so I say to them, do you know the people don't have health care or freeloading on you? Because when they go into an emergency room, the hospital passes the insurance company, puts $2,000 on average on your bill for health care. I can remove that $2,000 if you agree to the Affordable Care Act that we're going to mandate that everybody has to have health care. And then they're going to have to pay a little bit, and you're not going to pay that $2,000. And you know what? After that kind of discussion, they say, yeah, really? And then you say, yes, let me tell you the rest, Affordable Care Health Care. And I know it's a little throwing out out there, but, you know, you have to be able to talk with people from where their needs come from and not just think that your ideology is just going to be accepted because when it wants, you're going to get rejected. you got to have a conversation with them, and that's what this president doesn't do. He tweets. He doesn't lead by listening and bringing this nation together. When it comes to social media, you're a bit of a pioneer. In 2007, your campaign was the first federal campaign to create a Facebook fan page. You were the first member of Congress on Twitter to use their account on an official basis. There's been a lot of talk about how social media companies haven't taken responsibility for what's posted on their sites and have allowed misinformation and problematic content to be shared. Do you believe social media companies should bear more responsibility for what their users post? And if so, how would you enforce that? Would it be more government regulation? Would it be something else? Absolutely. The New York Times can be sued here in America if they print something that somebody else has put in as an op-ed, and they can be sued if someone feels they've been defamed. Why isn't the same for social media? Oh, we have a law in the 1980s that prevented that. We're going to change that law. I mean, they are media, social media. Why does a print magazine not have to get treated one way and the other doesn't? They're not two different animals. They're the same breed. So that's going to change, number one. Number two, there will be a coming together of saying what is abusive and wrong, and it will be enforced by the social media, but it will be overseen by the government. Because the military, I learned, expects what you inspect. And the government does a horrible job at that. It often passes legislation but never follows up to make sure it's being executed well. I mean, we're a government that could beat Japan and Germany in four years, but we couldn't roll out a healthcare website in four years. No wonder people lose faith in, in government. It needs to be executed, and I intend to bring that about. But there's one last thing, and we should be taking a lesson here from our valued allies in the European Union, that private information belongs to a person. It doesn't belong to government. It doesn't belong to private industry. You want to use my private information? I will, I'll give it to you if the price is right. I see no reason why when you put an iPhone down next to your uh, night table that on average 550 pieces of private information are taken off between 10 o'clock at night and 6 o'clock in the morning where those apps that are put on there plan that purposely. It's a wonderful piece that was done in one of the media uh, and, and on that. And what do they do with this? Well, they make a profit over it. So these these international organizations, Apple, and Amazon, and uh, Google, they all are making profit off our private information. You want my information? I've got to agree. You can't have it. You've got to agree that I've got to give it to you, and it's going to come at a price. So we've got to restructure the corporate commons for that, but also for one last thing. We have outsourced our, these corporations, not just our jobs to China, but our national security to China. So if you have an Android phone that's broken with Chinese software, you know, that information heads right on back. And you, you read the reports by Bloomberg, I'm sure, where it said that motherboards being shipped out of China have little microchips embedded in them. And they were intended for servers in Amazon and Apple, Navy Aegis cruisers and CIA drones. What are we doing permitting our national security to be outsourced? Because the technical products for 90% approximately of mobile phones and like 80, 85% of computers is made over there. So we've got to fix this issue, particularly with the 5G network that's coming around. 
you know, because whoever owns it, whoever builds it will own it. And you no longer have to hack. You can see everything coming through. And so we've got to make sure that we understand this new dimension of commons, because even in warfare, it will revolutionize it. And why we have to change our military, instead of buying more ships or structure, it should be investing, as I propose, a three-star admiral at less cost into cyber space. So I'll end with that. Uh, this is a massive area, but it begins to your fine question is, that's my private information. And social media is no different than print media. It's a, you know, yes, I know it's a different breed of, it's the same breed and it's got different stripes on it, but it needs to be treated the same as the New York Times or the Denver papers or anyone else. You acknowledge yourself that although it's still quite early in the Democratic presidential primary, you're tied for ninth place polling at 1% in recent polls. Some of the other candidates in your position have been asked whether they consider running for a different office in competitive races such as the U.S. Senate instead of president. As you're a former Senate candidate and you claim very close to unseating Pat Toomey in 2010, have you considered running for U.S. Senate in this cycle if you don't secure the momentum you're looking for? or potentially in a future cycle if you're unsuccessful in seeking the Democratic nomination? No. And I say that because I wasn't even going to get in again. But I saw this need for someone who the country had invested in over 35 years that can actually unite this country, not just beat Mr. Trump, standing beside him as a former three-star admiral, Someone who's represented a nearly two-to-one Republican district and gotten a re-elected without spending a penny on an ad. Someone who stood up against his party, the president on down when they were wrong on principle to accept Senator Arlen Specter, the Republican, who changed parties. But the man who had humiliated, tried to, Yanita Hill, when she brought up her sexual harassment claims against now Supreme Court uh, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, I beat him 40 points down, but it came at a cost. But that's what this nation most needs and most wants, someone who's in it for them, people, not party, not self, not special uh, interest. That's the value I can bring in the presidency and so and convene the world. So, no, this is it. But I have to also tell you this. One percent in two months, I've jumped into the middle of the field and I've done it just by being here in Iowa, going everywhere. I have yet to have one of the major cable news networks, CNN, MSNBC, uh, uh, Fox, after the first week to accept my request to come aboard and and talk. So the fact that we've done it, and I understand that, but you know, to do that without the town halls, to do that without anybody being shown on television outside of Iowa is a tremendous because of also Ninth in national poll, 3% down in Alabama. That's because they got a large group there. I actually sent my staffer down there to organize it and to help organize it. So, no, we've done pretty well despite yet, and we will, we'll work, start working on it to get uh, to have. I mean, we sent something like, I think it was 80 requests today because I'm going to be in New York City next week to be on the national news and just to introduce myself. So the fact we've come so far and so little Boats pretty darn well. And uh, we'll just double down our, our effort because, as good old Winston Churchill said, sometimes it's not enough to do your best. Sometimes you have to do what's required. And we're going to do what's required to serve this country as it needs to be served at this time. Joe Sestak, thank you for joining me. Edward, thanks for having me aboard. It's been a pleasure. And um, again, I can't tell you enough. And if anybody was interested in my uh, 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 website is josephtack.com, and I am running on accountability for people above party, above self, above any special interest. And thank you very much. That was Joe Sestak, a three-star admiral, the highest-ranking military official ever elected to Congress, the former representative from Pennsylvania's 7th Congressional District, and now a 2020 presidential candidate. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Joe Sestak 
or his campaign for president and plan for America at joesestat.com. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.